We'll hear argument first this morning in case 08351, Alvarez versus Smith. Mr. Castiglione. (coughs) (coughs) Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, despite the holding in von Neumann that the civil forfeiture hearing itself is all the process that is due for the seizure of personal property, the Seventh Circuit struck down Illinois' Drug Asset Forfeiture Procedure Act specifically because it does not require an additional adversarial hearing that takes place post-seizure but before the forfeiture hearing. As far back as this Court's decision in Gelston v. Hoyt and uh, Slocum v. Mayberry, this Court has recognized that the civil forfeiture hearing itself is the single unitary hearing um, where all persons having an interest in the property are present and the following questions are resolved. One. Is there any other area of law where we permit a prejudgment attachment and or seizure of property without a neutral magistrate reviewing the reason for that seizure? We don't permit a pretrial attachment, do we? I, except in some narrow circumstances. Except in some narrow circumstances. And I know, in, and certainly in garnishment cases and in uh, replevin cases, that you would have to have that type of hearing. But the interests are different here. The state's interest in the, uh, in the seized property. But, take, but that's, the, sorry. I don't deny that there's a state interest. The question is, who tests that interest? In what time frame? Meaning you can assert an interest, but someone has to determine whether it really exists or not. Your Honor, historically, that's always been at the civil forfeiture hearing. And that's, um, going, I guess, going back to Gelston, because what, the, what Gelston recognized is that Mr. Castiglione, you've been asked to address the mootness question, both counsel. Yes, Your Honor. Have forfeiture proceedings occurred in the plaintiff's cases? Is, is there any lingering question concerning the status of the property? Um, no, yet, yet, Your Honor, the, the forfeiture cases have concluded. It's true. We um, I have, get, have concluded. They have concluded. The, in th- there are three, three of the respondents sought um, the return of cars. Three had, had cash seized. In, in the three car cases, the, the cars have actually been returned. In two of the cash cases, the respondents defaulted. And in one of the cash, cash cases, the, part, the state and, and the respondent reached an agreement. So those cases are over. But we would submit, Your Honor, that this case is not moot because subsequent to the Seventh Circuit decision in this case, uh, the plaintiffs filed an amended motion for class certification. Um, and, it's doc- and that's at docket 49, uh, um, docket number 49 of the Northern District docket, um, filed on June 19, 2008, specifically asking for damages and, re- and restitution in addition to declaratory and injunctive relief. Well, has there ever been a case in which this Court has considered the merits of a dispute where the individual claims of the named plaintiffs expired before we heard argument and a, cl- and a class had not yet been certified. That's not the case here, Your Honor. At least one of the, resp- one of the respondents for certain, Taisha Brunson, her forfeiture case ended in 2009. So at the time, um, the amended motion for class certification was filed asking for damages and restitution. No, but that wasn't my question. The class has not yet been certified, has it? No, it's not, Your Honor. That's and the, the claims of all the named plaintiffs are have expired? Well, the injunctive claims may have expired, with, with the possible exception of the two respondents whose, case, whose, whose cash cases were defaulted. But, no, the, the damage claims, I think, were, were — but There the, were no damage claims when the final judgment was entered in the district court. That's correct, Your Honor. So it was a final judgment, and it went up on appeal. And at what point — did they seek to the um, — I mean, while the case was in the Court of Appeals, the final judgment dismissing the case, uh, there was nothing for the district judge to do. Well, but after the, the, um, the Seventh Circuit reversed the district judge's des- the decision granting the motion to dismiss, upon, upon remand, the plaintiffs then at that point asked for a certification of a damage class and a restitution class and, ex- and expressly stated that they wished to pursue a claim a claim for damages and restitution. But that Based on the has been granted. It wasn't granted then. It still hasn't been granted. That's true, Your Honor. And so it, you have nobody before this Court with a live claim, neither the original named plaintiffs nor a certified class. I would, so who's well, here? For, for mootness purposes, Your Honor, I think the, 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 the fact that plaintiffs have already asked for damages and have filed a pleading. They did not ask for damages 
originally. No, they did not. So as the case comes to us, we have a district court final judgment dismissing the case. The case was only for injunctive relief. Goes to the Seventh Circuit. It's in that shape. We are taking the case from the Seventh Circuit. Yes. I I suppose if the case is moot, then you're entitled to a Munsingware order. I would. So there's no controlling authority. We would take our position, Your Honor. And then I suppose the district court doesn't know whether to uh, award damages or not until it gets a final decision from, or a decision from the Seventh Circuit or this Court. That's correct, Your Honor. I mean, the, uh, um, whether or not a damage claim could go forward would depend on, on the, uh, on the, uh, on the validity of the Seventh Circuit decision. And I, our, our view, Justice Scalia, is that the, when the, uh, uh, upon, even though they did not formally amend the complaint, that's true. We acknowledge that. But in the in the motion for class, in the amended motion for class cert, I think the assertion of the claim for damages, at least for mootness purposes, is enough to give this court jurisdiction over over those claims. It had been there originally, but the problem is it wasn't there. The case comes to us on a complaint that is simply for injunctive relief, and that is moot. That, with the possible exception of the two respondents whose claims defaulted, Your Honor, in that it's unclear what it was, it, to the extent they were seeking the return of their property, their situation has not changed. Their, their property never was returned. What were they seeking to, to have it joined? They were seeking, Your Honor, a, uh, they were asking the Court to declare that the, uh, that the Illinois statute was unconstitutional for not providing an, an, an interim hearing. And, um, an injunction preventing, preventing Illinois from, from enforcing the statute. But si- I, I, since they defaulted in the in the final hearing, can't they possibly have any claim left with regard to an interim hearing? Well, I just think the nature of their claim hasn't changed. To the extent they were seeking the return of their property through through such an injunction, that hasn't changed uh, for those two claimants, uh, Yunker and and Williams. Um, but I, we, we rest our, our response, Your Honor. So am I forgetting, but didn't this start out as a class action and wasn't the claim, wasn't the class action denied? It was denied as moot. That's correct, Your Honor. And you didn't appeal that? Um, well, we didn't, we didn't appeal at all. The plaintiffs appealed um, the, and the district court's order, which it was a single order that granted, I'm sorry, that granted our motions to dismiss and denied plaintiff's motion for class certification as moot. That and was the, the, plaintiff, the plaintiffs didn't appeal the denial of certification. Did, the two issues, well, they, no, Your Honor, they did not. They appealed the order, they, they appealed the denial of the motion to dismiss. Uh, I'm sorry, the granting of the motion. Well, maybe we should, we should ask the plaintiffs about that. But you're saying that the two cases that were defaulted are not moot? Isn't, isn't a default the end of it? I'm saying they may not be moot, Your Honor, in that the, the claim for relief has not — I mean, they defaulted before — at least one of the cases before the complaint was even filed. So nothing has really changed in, in, in the status of their case. Um, I believe Mr. Williams, nothing has changed in his case from the time the complaint is filed. You, you said in your opening that there is just the one proceeding, and that's the tradition for forfeiture. But in your that's brief, right. you suggested — that there is a means that these plaintiffs could get back their property pending the ultimate forfeiture proceeding. You mentioned a slocum-type hearing, a petition for return of their property. <coughs> so I, I don't understand your, your argument that there's one and only procedure, the forfeiture procedure, when on the other hand you're telling us that there is a means well, I, think I can explain. I think and it also goes to the what, what is good, why the um, the 8850 uh, the use of an 8850 of the Barker Speedy Trials factors makes sense. The one hearing where these issues are resolved are, is a civil forfeiture hearing. It's true, but I think what Slocum does, just in, in, in a similar way to how the Speedy Trial factors operate, it gives a claimant an opportunity to come in and ask the court to tell the government to fish or cut bait to either file an action. Or release the property, and I think it operates much the same way that uh, the speedy trial factors op- would operate in a criminal case. And they, and they can do that before the before the time period has expired. Absolutely, Ron. They can certainly do that. They can. That's a remedy that's available up until uh, up until the forfeiture case is filed. And from that, but, point but surely your position is going to be that the statutory procedure preempts 
takes the place of any Slocum hearing, isn't it? I mean, somebody comes in and files a petition saying, here, I'm raising this right under, you know, early 19th century procedure, and you're not going to say, okay, here's our position or here's the property. You're going to say, wait until the forfeiture procedure that's provided under Illinois law. Well, I th- I, the, what Slocum does, Your Honor, I think we think I, we believe the Illinois has recognized for at least over 50 years that a, a, a property owner has a common law right to come in. But that was before the, stat- which the statute was enacted. That's certainly true, Your Honor. But the statute's a dead letter if you allow a Slocum action. All you all you need is a Slocum action, and, and the fact that the statute says you have to wait for uh, you know uh, that the uh, government has 40 days is meaningless. Well, the Slocum, I think, is a way of getting into court, getting, getting the government off. Exactly. It's a way of defeating the statute. Well, once, once, once this, the government does act, Your Honor, um, then at that point, I can say, if, if, in fact, the government's being dilatory, once the government files a forfeiture action, if the government's dilatory, there's remedies under, under Illinois law, our Code of Civil Procedure, or even a, perhaps a motion to dismiss. But the statute says the government isn't dilatory until, until the time period. 40 days. It has 40 days. What does that mean if it doesn't mean that the government has 40 days? Well, the go- I, think, I think certainly, Your Honor, the government does have a time period. Yes, I agree with that. The government certainly has a time period. But if the case were to somehow fall through the cracks and nothing would happen, I think what, what the, the common law remedies provide is a, a, a safety net for property owners to be able to get into court. Before the 40 days? No, I would say after the 40. I would say. Oh, okay. Well, that's a different story. These people are asking for a. A hearing before the elapsing of the 40 days. And if all, if all you say that Slocum provides is, is a hearing after the 40 days have elapsed and nothing has, has occurred, uh, that doesn't satisfy what they're asking for. Well, I would say Slocum that, that provides a hearing after 40 days, right? I would say it, if, if the government does nothing, it, it's a way of getting into court. It doesn't have to do anything for 40 days, is what the statute says. And we don't dispute that. And, and so, but you say if it, it, you don't dispute that it doesn't have to do anything, but you, you assert that if it does nothing, you can bring a Slocum action. I mean, which is it? Well, well, Slocum is an equitable remedy. If someone can establish, I don't think before the time has run out in, in, in our procedures, one could probably establish that. But it's possible if a case were to, were to, were to fall through the cracks that it gives some. Slocum, then, is the answer to a very different case. It's a case where you have a class action of people whose cases fell through the cracks and never got the procedures they were entitled to. It doesn't seem at all responsive to the claim that they're entitled to procedures before it falls through the cracks? Well, our position, Your Honor, is that the, the statute, the, the regime that Illinois has adopted the, with the time periods does, does comply with due process. It provides a way of dealing with um, some number of the issues respondents But isn't it the basic argument that you make that a forfeiture hearing is all the process that is due? Yes, Your Honor. Now, let me ask you this question. Suppose your statute said there shall be a forfeiture hearing with all the procedures you want, but the forfeiture hearing shall take place one year after the seizure. Would that be adequate? Under this Court's view, um, decision in FDIC versus Malin, I don't think you would look to the outer limits, Your Honor. But I think no, I'm saying the minimum. The, the, the hearing will take place one year after the seizure, not nothing earlier or nothing later. Would that be constitutional? I, again, applying — well, if it's possible for the states to um, to do it in a shorter fashion, it's clearly it's possible to do it in less. And if the state if the state's practice were to do so, then I would say no. There's no, there is no practice that no background practice. This is the new statute. Say, so you, you have to have a forfeiture hearing to describe it, but it shall take place six later. months or a year later. Would well, that's that shorter than the time period that this court found. Um, complied with due process in 8850. Well, I understand what the court has held. I'm asking your view of that hypothetical statute. I think it, I think. And if you agree that it's unconstitutional, then you have to agree that time is, a, is relevant it, it, to the question whether the forfeiture hearing. I would not agree, I would not agree that it's unconstitutional. So you would then say it would be constitutional to say one hearing one year later? I think facially it is, Your Honor. Ten years! Well, I think, again, I go back to FDIC versus... Ten years. Well, no, I would say ten years without any, well, any judicial you've, intervention. You've, give, you've given up the position, then. You, you said time does matter. So we're just arguing over what the time is, whether it's one, ten years, one year, or 40 days, right? Well, 40 days, I think, is, is consistent, is, is I think, well, reasonable. It may be, but that's a different but, argument. It's, it's, it's not an absolute. It's we have to consider whether the time period is reasonable, right? If, if 
I would say this. If a statute said you can't come in, state, you can't proceed for 10 years, and no one has any property owner or interest owner has no way of going in the court, that probably would be unfair. Can I ask you this about the the, the government's interest involved here and the practicality of the situation? And I, I want to put aside the innocent owner defense, which I hope to ask your adversary about. But putting that aside, let's take what I envision as sort of a typical case where the police officer arrest someone in a vehicle for a, a drug offense and uh, without a warrant and then has to file a complaint in court. What, what is the government, what is the burden on the government and what would be the burden on, on Chicago or the state of Illinois in a requirement that within some reasonably brief period of time after that, the, there must be the equivalent of the filing of a complaint in court, just as you would for the arrest of an individual without a warrant, where the only issue would be whether there was probable cause for the seizure, not whether there, you know, is some innocent owner defense, but just whether there's probable cause. I think there's several burdens. One, I think the, that hearing would be duplicative of the ultimate forfeiture hearing. I think if it's an adversarial hearing, it might be a way of doing like, a, like almost backdoor discovery in, in an attended criminal case. If we had to do uh, a, an adversarial hearing in the civil forfeiture case, I think it disregards the state's interest, Your Honor, in, in, in promoting informal negotiation and settlement. That's something I'd hope to talk I mean, about. He was just talking about probable cause. Also, something along the line. Well, it, it, I thought this case, though I grant you I could well be wrong, is not about a final forfeiture hearing where you have to show that it's more probable than not that the car was used for drugs. But under the Illinois law, Justice, Justice Alito said, you can seize a car without a warrant. Yes. And there are a list of circumstances. But in the Florida statute that Justice Thomas wrote about, it said, that a person whose car it is is entitled to a hearing, I thought, in a brief time to see if there was probable cause, just as a person arrested. You have to bring them before a magistrate within a short time to see if there's probable cause. Now, how do you do that in Chicago? Well, <clears throat> first of all, Justice Breyer, I would say the complete deprivation of one's liberty is not the same as the deprivation of property. The way we, the way we do it under our statute, the way we deal with this issue is there's the statutory regime really has two concepts. One for property um, seized property whose value exceeds twenty thousand, and one um, works. So you're less saying, against your question is there is no way a person who doubts his probable cause has no way. He has to wait six months till there's a forfeiture hearing. He's out of luck because then it merges with the merits. It does merge with the merits. Okay. That's historically that's your answer. There is no way. Well, there's, I don't there's, see there's, why you there's, there's, no, there's no formal hearing. Hmm? I'm sorry, Your Honor? I mean, what, is there a way or not? You have pointed to three statutes. Do they give them any way? They, they, those statutes are a way to getting, to getting into court uh, look, it, to expedite the hearing. And once, once the hearing is filed, Your Honor, it's certainly possible to, you know, to ex move to expedite the trial. How do you get an expedited hearing? I thought, I thought a property under 20000 and the state the, the time before the forfeiture proceeding could be 187 days. Forty-five of those days, Your Honor, is whether the, the property owner deciding whether to file a claim. And if, I mean, one of the possibilities, that's Section 6 of our statute, which is actually non-judicial in-rem forfeitures. If one were to simply file, property owner simply file a claim, but not a cash bond, then there wouldn't be a judicial proceeding. It would just be informal negotiation, negotiations with the state's attorney. One could always go to court by filing a cash bond. Um, and the but, bond but the, is for cost, not to get the bond. The bond is for cost, right. But the, is, there, is there any procedure for putting up a bond for the car so you can get the car back for the full value of the car? There isn't, Your Honor. I briefly addressed it. I know I have, I have one minute remaining. I would like to, to, to reserve the time for bottle. I'd like to answer this question. No, Your Honor. For bond, about 80, 80 to 85 percent of our cases are cash, seizures of cash. And as the Seventh Circuit recognized, posting a cash bond for cash is an absurdity. With respect to cars, Your Honor, the problem is the state's um, duty is to be able to preserve and prevent the destruction and dissipation of the property prior to the forfeiture hearing. If we bond it out, we can't guarantee that at the ultimate forfeiture hearing that property would be, would be preserved. Your, Your Honor, I'd like, if I may, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time we'll, for rebuttal. We'll afford you additional time because the Court's questions have intruded upon your rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. 
Mr. Jay. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin, if I may, with the colloquy that Justice Stevens and Justice Scalia had with my uh, co-counsel uh, about the hypothetical where the State mandates a minimum time. Uh, well, I would think you'd begin with the mootness question. I'd be happy to begin with the mootness question, Your Honor, and I, although I think that it's uh, to some degree, a question for the respondents what precisely they're seeking, because there are two respondents, uh, Yonker and Williams, who have lost their property. The property is in the possession of the state. And if their position is that unless a hearing is held within 10 days, which is uh, what they originally asked for in their complaint, a probable cause hearing within 10 days, if after that no forfeiture is possible because timely post-deprivation process has not been afforded. If that's their claim, then it appears their claim is still alive because the state still has their property. If, however, uh, their claim expires when the forfeiture proceeding is actually held, then that proceeding is over and we agree that their injunctive claims are moot. Well, <clears throat> what, what were they seeking to enjoin? Uh, it's not ent- entirely clear from their complaint, Your Honor. They were, a- they were asking for the imposition of this uh, 10-day hearing. Requirement, but, it, but and they're content. They are contending now. Each of these was filed after the ten days had run. Uh, the most recent seizure had occurred two months before the class action complaint was filed in district court. So it appears they were contending that they wanted the forfeiture proceedings stopped because a he, uh, hearing had not been held within ten days. So, uh, so the complaint doesn't make perfectly clear what kind of injunction they were seeking, except that they wanted the imposition of this 10-day procedure. What did the Illinois court give? Didn't it remand for an appropriate hearing to be given? Your Honor, the Seventh Circuit remanded for the district court to fashion, uh, to fashion some kind of procedure. That's right. And, and after that remand order, the plaintiffs Inter- uh, interpreting the, what the Seventh Circuit had said, filed the amended motion for class certification that Mr. Castiglione referred to. And in that, they said they wanted a class certified to pursue damages for the time that their property was detained, and they wanted the court to certify a class uh, of anyone who had had their property held for more than seven days this time uh, without, uh, without a prompt hearing. Right. Am well, I right? And what is, the, what is the rationale you're supporting it for the following? My car was parked on the street. There happened to be some big drug crime nearby, and the policeman took my car. In my opinion, there was no probable cause. I would like my car back. Now, I take it that in Illinois, there is no proceeding, as there was in Florida, so that I can claim there was no probable cause. And I, none at all, I never get that determination made. And moreover, I have to wait for six months, possibly, before I get a different determination made, which is whether they had more, more likely than not, whether that's entitled to forfeiture on the merit. Is that the law? If anything like it is the law, what's the constitutional justification for it? Well, let me begin, Your Honor, by pointing out that it's not the law, because the state's ultimate burden at the hearing is not preponderance of the evidence. It's probable cause. It's, preci- uh, it's precisely the same burden that they can keep my car, even if it's more likely than not that it was never involved. Well, when the, when the state shows probable cause, the burden shifts to the claimant to prove uh, by a preponderance. So the ultimate burden is by a preponderance. It's still the — okay, fine. But, but if Thank the claim, you. If the that isn't — that, that's a burden of proof thing at the final thing. That's not the thrust of my question. The thrust of my question is do I have to wait for up to six months before I have any magistrate, any neutral official, pass on my claim there was no probable cause to take my car? And Justice The Florida you- statute, by the way, doesn't do that. It says, of course you get a hearing on probable cause. The Florida, My right. The Florida statute, you're correct, unique, uh, unique as far as I know among all the statutes legislated by the 50 states that use asset forfeiture or the federal government, does provide an adversarial probable cause hearing uh, within. Okay. So nobody gives you, they go around taking cars even without probable cause. There's no way to do it. happens in every state. What's the constitutional justification for making a person wait for six months before he gets a neutral judicial <coughs> official to say whether there was even cause to take his car? The constitutional justification, Justice Breyer, uh, requires that a reviewing court look at each step in the process. And it's not just a matter of six months from beginning to end, that process in Illinois and in uh, many other systems has different steps. The first step is investigation and notice. 
The sec and then the second step is deciding whether, this, whether to pursue this. The third step is completely in the hands of the claimant, uh, where the claimant decides whether to pursue a judicial hearing. And the I'm sorry. You take the car and then you investigate? Your Honor, uh, there's more to investigate than just the probable cause to seize. In many cases, the probable cause to, uh, to believe the car is forfeitable is ironclad. But there is more to investigate because, for example, uh, an innocent owner in Illinois, by statute, is entitled not to have her car f uh, or her gun or her uh, personal pro other personal property, could be currency, but forfeited. But, and but, that but, you're, but you're sort of begging the question. Uh, you're saying to me uh, that initial period is for the government to figure out if it made a mistake or not. And we're entitled to that time. You're not entitled, meaning you, property owner, to go to a neutral magistrate who will make that decision without a personal interest in the outcome, because the person who sees does have an interest of some sort, many local police departments do, in seizing property because they keep the proceeds. So what you're saying is that constitutionally it's okay for the party holding on to property without a warrant to decide whether or not it wants to give something back, whether or not there's problem. There's a viable defense. I'm a little confused. Let me respond to that in a couple of steps. And first is to respond to your point about the incentives that local police departments may face. There is no incentive to, see, uh, to hold property longer than necessary because wh while the property is being held, uh, there is no ability to access that property. If it's currency, for example, as, as Mr. Casillion pointed out, 85 percent of their seizures are. Uh, the currency is held in a suspense account, and it's not accessible by the, by the seizing government at all. So the, the government has no interest in delaying longer than necessary, especially for cars. The government has to take care of the car, maintain it in a lot, you know, pre uh, preserve it from from harm. Second, uh, on the basic question of what is the government doing during this time, the government has a due process obligation, especially in an in-rem proceeding like this one, which deals with a piece of property to which there may be competing claims. Government has a due, itself has a due process obligation to notify everyone who has a claim to this property uh, that it's in the government's uh, custody and that there will be a proceeding to adjudicate the, the competing claims to it. I mean, in the, this court in Robinson versus Hanrahan decision in 1972 held that Illinois, under its forfeiture statute, had violated due process uh, by not providing notice to the owner, to the registered owner of a car, because it sent notice to that owner at his address when, in fact, he was in the custody of the state of Illinois in a criminal proceeding. The state has an obligation to notify, to investigate, to, especially after a seizure, even if it is a car, which you know, only a minority of seizures are, even if it is a car, identifying the driver is not enough to identify who has a claim to that car. There may be a registered owner. There may be a, uh, there may be a security interest. In currency cases, it's even more difficult because on the face of currency, there's no indication who owns the currency. May decided, I just get you to an answer that what I thought you could do at the beginning of the argument? How do you answer my hypothetical? You have a forfeiture hearing, but you have a provision that shall not take place for six months. And that, that of course, as I think the hypothetical recognizes, Justice Stevens, is different from a, a uh, statute like we have here, where there's a maximum time, but it may well different. take place. I'm just curious to know what your answer is. My answer, Justice Stevens, is that it might well be unconstitutional as applied, and the court in 8850 Wouldn't sets out the Wouldn't be unconstitutional on its face. It wouldn't be unconstitutional on its face, Justice Stevens, because sometimes the state has a valid interest uh, in holding uh, property for more than a year. And as uh, Mr. Castiglione said, in 8850 itself, the property was held for 18 months. But, the court has said in any due process cases. a statute that says in all cases it shall be held for at least 18 months without telling the owner? I think, Your Honor, that if the, that if the state uh, responded to an 8850 defense and said, and said nothing other than the statute says 18 months or 10 years, and, you know, and we've done nothing during that time, I think that it would be unconstitutional as applied. But as a practical matter, states and uh, for the federal government are not sitting around uh, doing nothing after seizing property. They are actively investigating who has a claim. They are notifying all claimants. They are uh, allowing uh, — allowing those claimants to file claims if they wish. A majority of all uh, seizures are uncontested. And then whenever a claimant wants one, that claimant is entitled to an in-rem judicial hearing where all, all claimants come into court uh, and have, uh, have the government's right to seize the property adjudicated and also the affirmative defenses, such as the innocent owner defense. Now, suppose a situation in which the property taken is really essential to the, uh, 
to the living of the person uh, from whom who owns it, a car, and the person needs a car to get to work every day. And, and there is really no reason why the, why the government has to wait that long. Is, is there no procedure by which he can say, you know, do it quickly. You don't have to wait so long. I'm, I'm the owner. I'm the only owner. I can, I can prove that. Let's have a quick hearing. I think that as the federal framework reflects, that is the, the kind of situation that, is, that can be addressed by legislation and the federal hardship provision, 18 U.S.C. 983F, is a good way of illustrating that, that uh, the government has competing interests in all these cases that compete with the claimant's interests, and in cases such as currency, where the government can't be secured against the possibility that the property will disappear, uh, then, uh, then there's no hardship exception. And, but the, government, the Congress, after extensive study, has made a hardship provision for other forms of personal property. Thank there you, is no, There's no hardship under the Illinois statute. There is no provision comparable to the federal legislation for hardship, is there? Uh, you're correct, Justice Ginsburg, that there is no statutory provision. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Peters? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case is not moot. It's not moot because at the time the plaintiffs filed the case, they clearly had standing. They immediately moved for class certification. And although their motion for class certification was denied, it was denied because the merits of the case were simultaneously denied. And, in fact, this Court has addressed a, a situation remarkably similar to this in United States Pro Commission versus Garrity. In the Garrity case, the class was not certified. It was denied, as it was here. The case became moot because the, the plaintiff in that case, who was a federal prisoner, had been released on parole. And nonetheless, the Court allowed the case to proceed. And the reason the Court allowed the case to proceed, as I understand it, is that the uh, capable of repetition yet evading review doctrine was invoked. Once that doctrine is invoked, the claim the, uh, the standing relates back to the time of the filing of the complaint. At the time of the filing of the complaint, there was standing, and the and putative You say it was likely to these same named plaintiffs were likely, likely to face this same situation again. No, that's not what I'm saying, Your Honor. Well, what I'm suggesting if, if you're relying on, on, you know, capable of repetition, yet evading review, that's... That's the test, whether, whether indeed these people stand a chance of having the same thing happen. I, I respectfully beg to differ, Your Honor. With respect to class actions and cases where the plaintiff has timely requested to certify a class, the capable of repetition relates to the class. There is right now today a class of people in the city of Chicago who have their cars impounded. That their claims are repeating daily. And You're begging the question. That is, you're assuming that the class is a valid class. It hasn't been certified. How, how can you make that, that argument when there is no class? Well, I, I can make that argument. Just an asserted class on your part. There's no class. Yes, and that was also true in Garrity, Your Honor. There w the, the motion no, it for wasn't. Class. The appeal in Garrity included an appeal of the denial of class certification. Yes, it did. So both issues, both the merits and the denial of the class certification, were still active before the Court. Here, you didn't appeal the dismissal of the class certification or the mootness of it. Well, we couldn't, Your Honor, because it was inextricably linked to the merits. That in but, Garrity. but in many appeals, parties plead in the alternative and say, if, you, if we win on the merits, reverse the dismissal of the class certification because we still want to proceed as a class. You didn't do that. You waited for the merits to be adjudicated and then filed a new class action. It's a very different procedural step. I don't think that it is significantly different when it, one considers the concerns that animated the Court's decision in Garrity. The concerns that were at issue in that case were the fact that the plaintiff was representing an, a, a class that was going to continue to exist, and that as to that class, there was constantly going to be a claim repeating, and that that person, even though the class was denied, in that case, it truly, it was denied on the merits, because he had an opportunity to litigate the merits. We did not have an opportunity to litigate the merits of the Rule 23. Mr. Peters, I think the Court in Garrity said 
they split the interests, and they said his interest in challenging the denial of class action status continued even though he was no longer incarcerated. So they were concentrating on his right to appeal the denial of class action certification. And that's what you don't have here, and that's what distinguishes this case from Garrity. I, I certainly agree that it is not an identical situation, Your Honor. But I think, as, as I said before, I think, again, that the concerns that caused the Court to reach that position in Garrity are, in fact, the same. Because in this case, the, um, there is a continuing activity with respect to the class. There is some — there are a group of people who are aggressively pursuing the rights of that class. There is a live controversy between the government and that class. So in all of those respects, which are similar to, to what I — But we must take it as it came into the Seventh Circuit, which is no appeal from the denial of class certification. So we have individual plaintiffs who are seeking to overturn the denial of injunctive relief. And that's all that's before the Seventh Circuit. That was, that was all that was before the Seventh Circuit, because I don't um, — it, it, it seems to me that it is just sort of a gratuitous gesture to say I'm appealing the denial of the class certification uh, ruling, when the class certification ruling is itself based entirely on the denial of the merits. If there had not — if there had been any inkling, any ruling that suggested that the um, — Rule 23 aspect, the class aspect, was being denied on class-related grounds, then, of course, there would be an appeal. But when — As it turns out, it, it, it wouldn't have been gratuitous. Well, <laughs> I, I understand Your Honor's position. If well, I have a I, different position, which is I'd like to see if it's practical to decide this case now, uh, two things stand in the way in my mind which I'd like you to address. Uh, the first is — uh, your opponents are saying, no, you shouldn't really address this issue now because there are three Illinois statutes which actually give them, anyone who wants it, a right to a hearing at least on probable cause. And that's a matter of Illinois law, and although the statutes don't seem to say it, they might. And the second is that this seems mixed up in my mind, not necessarily your fault, it may be my mind, but it seems to me there are two quite separate questions. When you are entitled to a final hearing of whether forfeiture is right or wrong, and whether you are entitled to a preliminary hearing on whether there was probable cause under the statute to obtain the car. Now, that latter question, I think, might be impractical in many cases to work out until there's been a trial of an individual who's accused of a crime, which may be much later. But the former question is where I think you have a point that there are five instances here in the statute where a policeman could seize a car without a warrant. And he has to have probable cause under most of them nonetheless. So your clients might say he did not have probable cause. I want a neutral magistrate to contest it. Now, in my mind, that reaches a, that's a different question than the final hearing about who's entitled to the car. And I also see the three statutes. And now I see a case where here in front of me everything is mixed up. So I think per, uh, perhaps I'm just seeing it that way. But uh, those issues are mixed up and confused and not separated out. So why don't we wait? What's I, your answer I think that, that waiting would be the prudent thing to do. Um, and it's unquestionably true that what we're suggesting with respect to the preliminary hearing is not identical to the final hearing. The final hearing is is on the merits. It decides where the property is going to finally and ultimately. The hearing that we're talking about is a conditional release hearing, similar to what happens in Crimstock, similar to what happens under the Civil Asset Forfeiture Review Act. Well, but then if it's, if it's money that's being conditionally released, there, there's no security for the government. If it turns out later on it shouldn't have been released, it's probably gone. Well, there, there could be grounds for — there could be ways of getting security for it. I mean, per, perhaps a, post, a person would post um, some other collateral because they desperately needed the cash at that moment. I certainly agree with Your Honor that the bond procedure is much more 
in tune with and much more likely to work with cars than with other property. May I ask you exactly what you think needs to take place at this hearing, and and the hearing you think has to take place within 10 days? No, Your Honor. In in the complaint, we did reference 10 days, and and the reason we did that is because uh, we thought that that was an appropriate time. Whatever the period is, 10 days, 14 days, some short period. Yes. I have uh, two questions. Must it be an adversarial hearing, and must the the State disprove the innocent owner defense? No and no. Um, I think that the — with respect to whether it's an adversarial hearing, what we envision is a hearing similar to what happens in Crimstock, where basically the — the government's burden is met by having police reports which, on their face, establish probable cause to at least seize the car. Well, but my understanding of Crimstock is that a, a lot of those seizures, uh, and others know more about this than I do, were for DWI, and that it is possible to assert an innocent owner defense there. And that's where I see a great impracticality in this. I, I don't see how uh, you can expect um, the State to come into court within such a short period and have any burden of contesting an innocent owner defense that, without compromising a criminal investigation? Well, if there was con- — my answer to that, I think, Your Honor, is in two parts. One is the Federal Government is already doing something like that with the CAFRA amendments. There are hardship provisions, and part of the hearing in- could include showing by the car owner or the property owner that they are, in fact, likely to prevail as an innocent owner. I, now, thought, gover- the, I thought the government said it, that doesn't apply to cash, so that which we're told is 85 percent of the seizures involved. The CAFRA does not apply to cash. Oh, that's yeah. true. Well, let me give you this example, which is pretty much based on something that you, you wrote in your own brief. Joe is arrested uh, on a drug offense driving a car, and there are drugs in the car. But Joe isn't the owner of the car. John is the owner of the car. Then John comes in 10 days later, 14 days later, and says, well, I, you know, I, I never had any uh, inkling that Joe was using the car to deal in drugs and had no reason to know that. And you think that within that short period of time, the State has to disprove that, uh, you know, that John didn't have reason no, to believe that Joe was involved in drug dealing? No, Your Honor. I think the burden will be on the property owner to establish, first, that that person is the owner of the property, and, second, to establish to some yet undefined degree that they have a likely innocent owner defense. I thought you said said the innocent owner defense didn't have to be inquired into in the probable cause here. I thought that was your position. It it is not ordered by the Seventh Circuit, but I — we would believe that an innocent owner argument should be included. Okay. That, that makes it harder. You're, you're challenging this uh, this statute on its face, isn't that right? No, Your Honor. As no? applied. Just as applied? Yes. We made that clear in the complaint. There has never been any argument to how the contrary until a, this Court. How can you have an as-applied challenge to an entire class? Well, first of all, Your Honor, what I we're suggesting, the order of the Seventh Circuit does not invalidate any provision of this Act and, in fact, is entirely con- consistent with Section 2 of the Act, which incorporates by reference federal remedies, which include interim remedies. So it is not how the Act on its face is written. It's how it is being applied to these people. And in addition to that, we're not suggesting that every — To to, to have an as-applied challenge, regardless of whether the the Illinois law provides a uh, a remedy, wouldn't you be able to uh, individually assert under Section 1983, unconstitutional action? I mean, isn't there a federal remedy? If all you're concerned about is as applied, you mean you're being treated unconstitutionally by a state and you have no remedy? There is a federal remedy, Your Honor, but that is not — Why isn't that enough? That's that's certainly not enough, Your Honor, for the following reason. It is — largely impractical for most people. Many of the people who are involved in, in drug forfeiture seizures are people with modest to low incomes. 
probably little to no access to attorneys. The likelihood of them understanding, first of all, that they may have this right, and then contacting an attorney and getting an attorney to litigate. But they will know about the probable cause hearing that you want it, that you want set up, right? If this is why it's, it should be a class, it clearly applies to a large class of people. Which is why you're asking for a facial challenge. You want these hearings in all cases, no, regardless of what the individual circumstances are. Isn't that so? No, that is not so. It is not so. It's, yes. Well, it, what are the, the individual circumstances of all the other people in the class? We don't know what they are. We don't know whether it's a car that's been taken, money that's been taken, whether they're millionaires, whether they need the car. We, we know nothing about them. That's correct, Your Honor. But that's a function of the fact that this case came to the Court without the benefit of discovery, without um, having an opportunity to identify. But what I, was, what I would suggest, Your Honor, is this. We are not suggesting that every single person who has a piece of property taken is necessarily entitled to this hearing. If, for example, the police sees my favorite baseball card. I would not be entitled to a hearing under the Matthews criteria because my favorite baseball card does not justify putting the government through the expense. On the other hand, there are categories of people. Say they, they seize $5,000. There is some limit below which the hearings may not apply. But what if, what if, if they your innocent owner uh, or the hearing that you're seeking, you establish, well, I, I was going to sell my baseball card to give me the money to to survive, to get food. That was my — I mean, do, what happens then? There would have to be — first of all, we don't know how that would administratively be handled because of the posture of the case. But my suggestion, Your, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, would be this, that the likely result in a case — in this case is that there should be hearings for all car owners and that there should be a baseline — dollar value below which person is not entitled to a hearing. So how just that to get back to the, the cars, I, I thought your answer to Justice Alito was a little abstract. In the absolute concrete case where uh, the drug uh, the suspect is driving the car, there are drugs in the car. Uh, at uh, your hearing, the uh, uh, it's not registered to him. The registered owner comes in and says, uh, that's my car. I had no idea it was being used for drugs. Uh, who wins, the state or the uh, registered owner? Well, in, in, in those circumstances, and that's the only car, I would say most likely the property should be returned to the car owner. However, I would add that if the government has some concerns about, uh, for example, that they need additional time to investigate this innocent owner claim, then by having the hearing in front of a neutral and detached well, person. Well, aren't they always going to say that? They're going to say, well, we don't know if the registered owner is involved in the drug conspiracy. We don't know how closely uh, uh, he's tied with the owner, so it's reasonable to assume he knew what was going on. Well, and besides, we've got a lot of other bigger fish to fry during this period. We're trying to find out the scope of the conspiracy. We're trying to find out what, who, where the sales were going to take place. Why do you force us to, to focus our energies on the relationship between a registered owner and the guy driving the car? Well, I don't think uh, that that is likely to happen, and I think what's going on in New York is proof that that is not how it works well, out. And the I situation think is, is much worse than that, that they don't have the — that they need time to investigate. They may have the registered owner under investigation. They may think he's involved in the drug conspiracy as well. They may have him on wiretaps. They, they may be preparing to arrest him. Now, you want to force them to come into court within 10 or 14 days and disclose the details of a, of a pending criminal investigation and, and prepare to cross? It, it, no, Your Honor, I'm not suggesting that at all. Well, then I don't understand how this is — how you can possibly have the innocent owner issue adjudicated at this quick hearing. I can understand the, the, the argument that you have to have the filing of the equivalent of a, of a complaint. When you, that, that has to be filed when someone's arrested without a warrant, where it's not adversarial and, and you establish probable cause for the seizure. But when you start to go beyond that in, in drug forfeiture cases, at least, not, not DWI cases, I just don't see how that's workable. Counsel, can well, you unpackage for me this hearing? Because there is a confusion in it that appears both in your papers and in this argument. There's a probable cause component, which is the police coming before a neutral magistrate and saying, this is the reason I, I seized. 
I have probable cause to believe that this car was involved in an illegal activity, and this is why. And then there is what sounds like to me a sort of remission-type component to the hearing you're looking at, which is a magistrate saying, okay, you have probable cause, but there is no reason for the seizing authorities to keep the car because you can post a bond instead, or something else should be done to mitigate the damage to you during this process of forfeiture. Am I correct that there are two components to your request? And if there are, I understand the probable cause component, but I'm not sure how you get to the second component of how and why due process would require the state to have a, I'm calling it remission, but a remission-like proceeding. Am I correct? Am, am I understanding what, what it is you're? Yes, Your Honor. But let me go back in, in response to your question, and I think in part to Justice Alito's. The Seventh Circuit hasn't ordered any specific hearing. So I am, at, at this point, um, advising the Court of what I think this hearing should look like. It, it could well be, upon remand and discovery, that what I am suggesting should, the hearing should look like May, it may not look like that at all. It Isn't could be, that, that one of the problems with the Seventh Circuit decision? That it, it covers the waterfront, it covers cash, as well as any property. It's not concentrated on cars. And what your complaint asked for, you said it was as applied, but you are asking for a declaration that defendants must hold a post-seizure probable cause hearing within 10 business days, and you're asking the court to enjoin the defendant's current practice of seizing property and retaining custody without a judicial determination of probable cause. That sounds to me like a facial challenge to this statute, and you're asking for a declaration the statute is invalid, not as applied to any particular person. I think it's invalid as applied to categories of people. But I would continue to maintain. You think it's un- you think it's unconstitutional as applied to everybody who was not given this this uh, this preliminary hearing. That that's what the complaint says. You, the class you want certified is the class of everybody who has not been given a preliminary uh, hearing. I, I I don't know the difference between that and saying that this statute is unconstitutional as applied. I mean, just, just, just because you don't say in your complaint this is a facial challenge, it amounts to a facial challenge. You say everybody who has not been given a preliminary hearing is entitled to relief well, because the statute is bad as to all of them. The Seventh Circuit, however, did not endorse completely what we alleged in the complaint. We, of course, in the complaint, like most complaints, ask for as much as you think you might be able to get. But the Seventh Circuit did not order hearings across the board for every single person whose property is taken. And I'm not suggesting that every single person whose property is taken will necessarily be entitled to a hearing. There are — Go ahead. Finish. There are going to be circumstances when the value of the property is de minimis as compared to the cost of the hearing. That's not the class you ask to be certified. You ask to certify everybody who had been denied a preliminary hearing. Yes, I — I did, Your Honor. And in that regard, I was mistaken. But the Seventh Circuit corrected my mistake and only ordered a remand for a determination as to who it would be who would be entitled to this. Where, where it doesn't change this, this, this uh, action from a class action, in, uh, from, from a facial challenge into a non-facial challenge. They can't change your complaint. You were either asking this to be struck down on its face or you weren't. And what, what, the, what the Seventh Circuit did doesn't change that. Well, I, Your Honor, I think what the Seventh Circuit did does change it, because now the ruling is what was uh, determined by the Seventh Circuit. And the Seventh Circuit did not say that every single person is entitled to a hearing. No, what can I get to the merits for a second? Yes, Go back sir. to what Justice Alito and Justice Sotomayor were asking. 
This statute gives a policeman the right to seize some property without a warrant if it's a circumstance where you could seize a person without a warrant. That's basically what it says, doesn't it? Yes. All right. In that kind of situation, I would think maybe you're entitled to a quick hearing where the only subject would be, was that language carried out? Was that policeman right? Was there probable cause or wasn't there? Now, if that's the issue, I don't see why you give up at all on the baseball card. I mean, if somebody comes into my house and takes a baseball card and he's supposed to have probable cause and he doesn't, I don't see why I can't go get a judge or a magistrate determine whether he had a my baseball card and pretty quickly, too. If you go to the other, if you go to the other, which is whether there's an innocent owner or whether, in fact, you should give bail to the property. I mean, that's I know we give bail to people, but I don't know that we give bail to property, maybe real property. But uh, uh, that seems a much more complex argument. So I want to know, what's your authority that we should give bail to the property and have a hearing on that? And why do you give up in respect to baseball cards or anything, in fact, to the first? Well, I, I wouldn't like to give up my favorite baseball card, but um, the reason that I said that, Your Honor, is this. The Matthews criteria, which we are espousing here, require a cost-benefit analysis. And if the value of the property under that criteria, using that criteria, do, does not warrant a hearing, then as to that property, there shouldn't be a hearing. So there doesn't have to be a hearing in every case. So, there it's, may as be- a, uh, so it's as applied in every case, which I think ties in a little bit to the mootness question that we began with because it focuses on the circumstances of the individual claimants. And if the individual claimants have already had their property returned, I think it accentuates the mootness issue. I, I continue to ma- maintain, Your Honor, that the, the — as long as there was standing when the case was filed, and as long as there is a live class that could be represented by these class reputative class I potential class you should potential call it. class You're, yes your honor uh, then there is standing on and i believe the standing can be established through the garrity decision i agree that it is not literally identical to garrity but i think the underlying circumstances that animated the court's decision in that case are the same and that therefore these people maintain standing if, however, uh, in, in response to a question that you uh, asked uh, Mr. Castiglione earlier, uh, if the case became moot as a result of the return of the property, then it wouldn't be a Munsingware situation. It would be a Bancor versus Bonner situation because if it became moot as a result of the settlement of the case after the Seventh Circuit's decision, then the Seventh Circuit's decision should stay in place. So if, if I, I do not agree that the case is moot, but if hypothetically the case were moot, then we're not in a Munsingware situation, we're in a Bancor situation. Because well, that's, the an interesting, that's an interesting question. I mean, is it becoming moot through their voluntary cessation or activity when the state law requires them to take particular action? No, what I'm, what I'm saying, Your Honor, is if we're, def- if we're defining mootness as the ultimate return of the property, then the property was per- returned pursuant to settlements in, in four of the cases. The, the plaintiffs agreed, we'll pay $400 instead of $20,000, you return our car. The car was returned. So if the case was settled and became moot because of the settlement, it is not a situation in which the court can adopt the Munsingware position. It w- really is a Bancor situation, and the Seventh Circuit's decision remains All these played. problems really arise out of the fact that the effect of the Court of Appeals' decision basically was to overrule the motion to dismiss. It left everything open on remand. So if we said it's moot, you'll just get another plaintiff and bring another lawsuit, which is what you do if the if the court we're, — we're, we're trying to get into a case much earlier than we should, it seems to me. 
There's, just let the proceedings go ahead on remand and find out what all the all these factual answers that uh, I, these I, questions are, uh, should be answered. I, I certainly agree with that, Your Honor. Be, the the, um, there mootness, the mootness decision won't really decide anything. You just say you got to file another lawsuit, start over again. Yes. But if you just say we, should, we probably, my judgment, we ought to dismiss this writ as improbably granted and let the record be developed and the case go by and we can decide the issues. That, it seems to me, is, is a very wise choice of action, um, um, but where you for said obvious it, you reasons. Said but the, beyond that. The Seventh Circuit, your complaint, you say, is you asked for the universe, every, every kind of property, uh, a due process hearing within 10 days or a short period. But you said the Seventh Circuit narrowed the relief. And I'm looking at the Seventh Circuit decision, and I really don't see what was narrowed? I think they left everything open for the district court. Well, where it, is it? Where is there any narrowing? Well, the, the narrowing, as I perceive it, Your Honor, is this: I believe the court said at different times whether an appropriate remedy can be fashioned. The court did not say for whom. It didn't say must be for everybody. It didn't say what would be necessary to trigger the right to the hearing. It didn't say how much time would elapse. It left — it did leave, in that sense, everything open. But by leaving everything open, it also allows the Court to narrow the uh, categories of people who would be entitled to this hearing in, that, in such a way that it would uh, uh, be an effective, practical remedy. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Castiglione, why don't you take three minutes? Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> well, Your Honor, initially um, — Two of the claimants here lost their property. They defaulted. Three had their property returned. This is not a case where the matter, the underlying matters, uh, concluded by voluntary cessation. I, I thought they didn't. I thought some didn't have it returned, but there was a settlement. One did, Your Honor, but it wasn't in response to the federal litigation. So our, our position would no. be if, if this is moot, this is really much it would apply. The mootness was not a result of any settlement between the city. That's and correct. Well, I mean, it, did, your, it didn't your, settle because your of the friend lawsuit. said the opposite. I mean, well, it settled, Your Honor, just as, as, as through a normal course. It was not in response to the federal litigation that was going on independently. I don't understand. Well, I'm, I'm, I they, guess they got all of their property back. Oh no, no. In those cases, yes, Your Honor. The 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 the, 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 the hearing cases went to hearing, and the uh, the three with the three car owners, and they ultimately received their cars back. I know, I don't understand. They, they got their cars back, yes. right? The, the people who had money at stake, what happened to the money? Two of them default, uh, two defaulted and one reached, reached a settlement with the state. A settlement. So you yes. have at least one case where the mootness is attributable to a settlement. You have at least one plaintiff, and, and uh, you, you can't get the, the, the kind of uh, uh, um, remand for mootness that you're asking for. Oh, no, I understand, Your Honor. I'm just making the point that if this case, if a court finds it's moot, that we would, we would want, uh, would ask for an entry of an order vacating the orders below pursuant to, pursuant to Munsingware. But we don't do Munsingware orders where, where the mootness is a result of a settlement. Our position, Your Honor, is that the settlement wasn't in response. We didn't settle the federal, the un, we didn't settle the federal litigation. The, the underlying forfeiture case was, was resolved. I thought your answer is that they didn't all settle. They all didn't settle. That's right. That's, right. That's a better answer, I think, Your Honor. But what good would a Munsingware order do anyway? They just file another lawsuit, won't they? They could. Yeah. They certainly could. If you, they have a right to do that, Your Honor. And, um, and then if the district judge said, having read this opinion, which has been vacated, says, well, I guess it states a cause of action. I will deny the motion to dismiss. It would be exactly where we are now. We, and we would. There's no doubt about that. Um, just get... Clarification. Under your state law, there is no way for an owner to come in and challenge probable cause to seat. There, Not a defense, right. but the example the, Judge Breyer said, my car was just sitting there. There is not, Your Honor. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the forfeiture. And second, involved. is there any procedure under your state law to do the second half of what your adversary said he was looking for, a remission-type proceeding that would balance the government's need to hold the property and the individual's need for it and whether there's a 
bond that could be posted or not? Not that we — Illinois doesn't provide for a bond, Your Honor, and we indicated there, there are problems with bonds, certainly for cash and, and for, uh, and for um, other personal well, property Well, that may well, be but part of the Matthews issue, that once you prove probable cause, giving away — giving back money just never would probably be uh, rational to hold a hearing about, but that might not be true for real property, correct? Under, even under Matthews, under and a Matthews analysis. I'm not sure I understand Your Honor's question. If you apply a Matthews analysis, yes. the multifaceted item would say for the seizure of cash, maybe only the hearing has to well, address okay. probable cause, but for real property it has to go further. Not real property in the personal. sense of real personal property. It has to go further because there has to be some sort of protection of the interest of the individual pending. Let me attempt to address that. The, the statute does uh, contemplate, Your Honor, section, especially Section 6 of DAPA, um, non-judicial remedies. And then essentially, if, if, if the amount of property is under 20000 or if we're dealing with a, um, a car which f- falls under Section 6, those cases are routinely dealt with by negotiation, Your Honor. And I think that's the best way to deal with hardship. Um, the hardship examples given is that both through um, uh, negotiation and, and, and a speedy hearing. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. Thank you, Your Honor.